morning again. Uh, we are going through a series of Rooted Deep, Growing Tall, and we're going through the book of Colossians. If you weren't here last week, uh, we did an introduction to it, and we started talking a little bit of background. Um, I also, uh, last week I mentioned that this whole series is, uh, we're going to really are going to go deep. We're going to get into scripture. Uh, this whole book is a lot of Christology, a lot of, um, a lot of talk about who Christ is. If we can pick a phrase that oversees that book, the book of Colossians or the letter of Colossians, um, it would be the supremacy of Christ. Um, it's a very, uh, in-depth book and we're going to take it, um, little sections at a time throughout the, there's only four chapters, but we're going to go over the next six or eight weeks um, digging into this. And at today's message, we are going to dig deep. So be ready. Get your pens out, your notes out. Uh, be ready to take notes. Uh, we're going to dig into some things you probably haven't heard about or, or heard of. So we're going to dig deep into this book. The, the, for, the, the uh, chapter we're going to be in is chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. So if you want to get prepared, uh, when, when we go to uh, preaching Bible studies, we should always be taking notes uh, and, and so we can grow and remind ourselves of what we've learned. So, uh, but I want to start off this, this today's, uh, today's message with the following question. When it comes to matters of faith, how good is good enough for you? When it comes to matters of faith, how good is good enough for you? What is your goal in the Christian life? What is your goal in the Christian life? Should we even set goals in the Christian life? Is your goal to be the best Christians you can, best Christian you can possibly be for the glory of God? The Lord's desire for us to grow and mature is obvious. We see that all through Scripture. Um, preachers preach about it all the time. We know we're about making disciples. We know that we have Sunday school and Bible studies all around. And, and we know that's, that's something that's very common in the Christian life. But most of us would admit that our personal spiritual goals are not as ambitious as the Lord would probably have us. Our goals are probably not even, we probably don't even set goals for our Christian life. We may be a hard worker when it comes to working as a student or, or our jobs or be a successful businessman or maybe even a, a great hunter or great fisherman or even a, 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 a scratch golfer. You might, you might be an excellent golfer and, we, and you will put hours on the, on the course for that. But, we are exerting, but are we exerting that same kind of effort in our spiritual growth? Are we putting that same same tenacity and same hard work into growing more like Christ. See, there's a high price of settling for less when it comes to our relationship with God. Besides losing out on, on the love and peace and joy that He has for us, that He would like us, but there's a lot more in, at stake. Because if we don't grow in our, in our knowledge of God and our relationship with God, if we don't do that, it, it will neg negatively impact the kingdom of God. Our testimony won't be great. We'll, we'll show our immaturity um, when we meet people, when we say we're a Christian, and then they look at our lives and we say, and they wonder, well, are you really a Christian? Because that, from what I know, is, doesn't seem to line up. So, it, so our walk, our, our spiritual maturity, definitely affects more than just our joy. It affects all aspects of our lives. When we fail to grow spiritually as followers of Christ, our spiritual negligence robs us of blessings. And it potentially affects others we influence um, and where they spend eternity. But that shouldn't surprise us. 
That shouldn't be anything new. That shouldn't surprise us. Whenever people fail to strive for excellence, others are adversely affected. When we, when we don't try our best or give it our best, it will affect other people. Have you ever thought about how chaotic life would be if people that were, that were key people in our lives, like medical professionals, didn't, didn't, didn't give it their best? What if medical professionals only gave 99.9% effort? They didn't, they didn't give it their all. What if they did that? How would it affect us? Well, I have some, I love numbers. Here's some numbers for you. An OBGYN nurses, if they only give 99.9% effort, uh, 12 babies would be given to the wrong parents every day. Cardiologists, if they didn't give their best and, give and, and strive for perfection, 291 pacemaker operations will be performed incorrectly every single day. 291. Pharmacies and pharmacists, 20,000 prescriptions would be filled incorrectly every single day if they only gave 99.9%. See, it, it, it's obvious that if we don't give our best at things, and especially things like that in medical professions, that, that it is going to affect other people. Obviously, mediocrity with medical professions can cause others to pay an unreasonably high price. That's why these medical professionals have continuing education that they have to go through. They have to continue. Every year they give uh, continuing education credits, and they're always going through training. You go to the hospital, and they have all these policies and procedures in place. So things like that do to limit that gap of imperfection. Because we are Hermione. We do make mistakes. So they do these things for that reason. Paul in the church of uh, Colossus last week, we talked about how Paul recognized their, their love and their faith and their hope that they had. They, they had a love for each other like family. Paul knew how important it was that they continue to grow and mature in their faith. The first eight verses, Paul talks about his gratitude. And that's what we talked about last week. He talked about his gratitude for these folks. These folks, he didn't start the church there, but he knew about them, he heard about them, and he loved them. And he said, you know what, you guys, I hear about the great things you're doing and the great things, your faith and your love and your hope in Christ. And, and, and so he writes this letter. And beginning at verse 9, which is what we're going to look at today, Paul prays a prayer that he hopes will be a prayer that will encourage them to continue to grow. So he, he recognizes where they're at, but he also recognizes their need to continue to grow. These verses that we're going to cover today and next week a little bit represent what is considered one of the greatest single Christology, Christological statements that Paul have ever written. These are amongst Paul's greatest verses, and they're written to encourage, and, and encourage new believers in Christ. It's written for, for us to, to be encouraged to continue to grow in our grace and knowledge of Jesus. Amongst the greatest commandment of Christ is found in Matthew 28, where uh, this is the great commission, and the great to, to go out and share the gospel and make disciples. And I think a lot of us know that. And that's what, uh, it's an imperative that Jesus put in place. But this is what Paul is doing here. Paul is doing this. He's, he's doing this by presenting the supremacy of Christ in a bold, clear, profound language. And Paul's making disciples. So he, they're already saved, and now we're moving forward, and Paul's getting into some meat. He's not, he's not keeping them on milk anymore. Now he's saying, look, I see what you're doing. I hear about how, how, your, how your relationship with God is, but you know what? I'm going to disciple you now. I'm going to teach you some things, and we're going to deal with these issues. 
and I'm going to uh, teach and prove and encourage you. And so now we get into verse 9. So if you open your Bibles to verse 9, we're going to read through 9 through 14. It'll be up on the screen so you can follow along also. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, or saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up this word and, it, and this letter to the Colossians, open our hearts and our minds to you, Lord. We want to learn from you, and we ask the Holy Spirit to be here right now so we can learn from you. And, and as we dig deep, help us grow tall. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This first part that Paul starts talking about is something that we need to really look at and look closely and examine closely. The first aspect of the Christian growth addressed by Paul in this special prayer is something that we all need to consider very, very carefully. Any follower of Christ interested in continuing growing in the Lord need to be filled with knowledge of God, and that's in verse 9. We need to be filled with knowledge of God. In verse 9 of the text, Paul prays that the Colossian Christians may be filled with the knowledge of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, they are already saved, so he's really emphasizing you got to continue that. And, and so there's this, this process of, of spiritual growth. It's not just a, a, I'm a Christian and that's it. A lot of people, a lot of people around the Christian church, they'll, I'm saved and, and I'm saved by grace and that's it. That's kind of all that happens. And they don't grow any further than that. But, but here is there's a, there's a process. There's, there's something involved in it. There's more to it than what we, what we see Paul's now implying that these believers had no knowledge of God's will or God. Clearly, they were saved. But this word filled is not just a, like a past tense. It's, it's an ongoing thing to be, to be filled, to bring to completion, to, to finish or to make known. That's what he's talking about here. Paul is praying that the will of God will continue to fill their lives, to continue to grow in them. They'll continue to grow in spiritual maturity, uh, towards spiritual maturity, grow towards spiritual uh, understanding, understanding the things of God. Now, I'm going to teach you some things. I told you, we're going to get deep. There's a, there's a theological word that I want you to learn. I want you to know this because it's important in understanding how we grow spiritually. And that word is called sanctify or sanctification. Now, there's a, a theologian up in Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, and he wrote a book called Christian Theology, and he, this is how he describes sanctification, okay? So, Eric, uh, Millard Erickson wrote this. He said, sanctification is the continuing work of God in the life of believers, making them actually holy. By holy here is meant bearing an actual likeness to God. Sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. It is a continuation of what has begun in regeneration when a newness of life was conferred 
upon and instilled within a believer. That's at the time of salvation. In particular, sanctification is the Holy Spirit. Now, this last line, I want you to think, uh, uh, write down or remember. In particular, sanctification is the Holy Spirit uh, applying to the life of the believer the work done by Jesus Christ. So that's what sanctification is. It's, Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit working in your life and applying the work that Jesus did on the cross for you. That's what sanctification is. Now, there's three aspects of sanctification that you need to know. One is positional. Positional sanctification is the day that, that you accepted Jesus Christ, you are considered holy in the eyes of God. You were considered justified. When Jesus took the sin away from you because of what he did on the cross, you were seen by God as a holy children of God. And that's a position. At salvation, believers are justified, declared righteous before God. Romans 8, uh, 29 says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is an entire thing from God. This is entirely from God. When, you, when Jesus died on the cross and he took that penalty and that payment of sin, he gave you a choice to follow him or not. And when you said, you said, you know what, I accept that gift from Jesus Christ, that is what happened to you. You were sanctified in the eyes of God. And it was something that completely he did. Now there's another aspect, it's a, it's a future, an ultimate, some people call it an ultimate sanctification. And this is called glorification in theological terms. And this is in the future. In the future, when you pass away, you will go to heaven and you will be glorified. It is, the, it is realized at resurrection that when the believer will be transformed into the likeness of Christ and presented to the Lord as holy. You will be presented to the Lord as holy. So the, so the work that Jesus did is completed at that point. It's a future tense. It's a future that's going to happen as a follower of Jesus Christ. Then dwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is both a promise of an agency for the future glorification of people. Now how that looks is the redemption of the body, inheritance undefiled in eternity. So we get this inheritance for all eternity to spend eternity with Jesus Christ and we're delivered from the future wrath of God. That is amazing. That is awesome right there. We get, when we're, we're not only sanctified in the beginning, but then we get this future hope. And we talked about this last week. This hope that we have in Jesus Christ in the future. And this is what it's talking about, this future holiness. We won't have sin in our lives. We won't have disease. We will be able to, we will be, I have a new body. I'm excited for that. Now, in between that, that day we got saved and the day we go to heaven, there's this thing in between there. And what do we do there? How is God working? And that's what we're going to focus a little bit more on. How is God working between the day we got saved and the day we go to heaven? Is he working? Or is it completely us? Is he changing us? Is he, is he growing us toward godliness? Or is it just completely on our shoulders to do something and, and conform to certain rules? Those are the questions that need to be asked and, and so are answered. And so this other one, this one in the middle, is called progressive sanctification, which is a growing toward spiritual maturity. Now the goal of this is to become more like Christ. And that's the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to produce godliness in the life of the believer. That's right. We can become godly and holy people. 
We're holy in position, but we can also be holy in between there. Progressive sanctification is becoming what we already are in Christ. There's a, a word that I, a phrase that I heard years ago that's called already but not yet. We're already holy in the eyes of God, but we're not quite there yet. So the work is being done in between there. And there's work that needs to be done in the body of Christ and in the body of His people. There's a work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. The Holy Spirit operates in believers to free them from the power of sin the power, and from death. The spiritual death that we have. The progress of, of sanctification is a, or spiritual maturity is marked by conflict. Because now we have the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit, at the day we accepted Christ, we have the Holy Spirit working in us. And He's saying, okay, I'm going to move you toward Christ-likeness. I'm going to move you toward holiness. And I'm going to teach you and I'm going to mold you. But then we have the world over here that's confronting us and challenging us and saying, no, that's not the way it is. That's not how you should behave. And so we have this conflict that constantly goes on. God wants us to be more like Him, and then the world wants us to be more like them. And so this, this spiritual growth is marked by conflict. It's on a collision course with the world. This conflict in the life of the believer, rather than being proof sanctification is absent, is evidence of its work. When you have this conflict in your life, this conflict against the world, and you struggle against the world, that means the Holy Spirit is working in your life. That means the Holy Spirit is convicting you of the things that you see. Or when you start getting angry at sin, you see sin in the world and it bothers you. When you, see, when you hear about pornography or addictions or all these different things that are going on in the world, and you see that and you say, that bothers me. That's not what God wants. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you and teaching you. Working in your life. It's an act entirely of God so that the righteous man lives by faith and not by works. We have a choice in how we participate in this, this growth. So God works in our lives, convicts us, right? So he works in our lives. There's, there's this process of spiritual maturity. He says, hey, study your Bible. Hey, do this. Hey, go this direction. Avoid this sin. And he works in there, but now we have a choice. We have something that we can respond to we can ignore the Holy Spirit and we can grieve Him or we can accept and go forward. Romans 12.2 says, Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. When you will, then you will learn, how, or learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 also says it, says it in this way. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify you. So there's that word we're talking about. Sanctification. Sanctify. And your whole spirit, or may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's talking about sanctifying. He's talking about this purity going toward godliness and, and holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 So all of us who have laid that, uh, had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. I think that's pretty clear. 
See, that veil that he's talking about is that veil of darkness. When we, before we accept Christ, we think the world is okay. We have this, this view of, of, you know, sin is not that big of a deal. Okay, there's some, some ethics that we might disagree with. There's some things that we might disagree with because we think they're wrong because of how we're raised or the way society acts. But we, we're, for the most part, before we're saved, most of the world is okay. That's what most people think. But when we, when we accept Christ, the moment we accept Christ and the Holy Spirit comes in us, that veil is removed. And that, what that's talking about is that, that blinding darkness. We no longer see the things of the world as good. We actually see them in the right context. We see them the way God sees them. We start understanding the way Scripture tells us. And we start seeing these sins. And we say, okay, I see this now. And God's working our lives. See, the Colossians understood God's will but they needed to be open to know and learn more about God's truth. So they understood, but they needed to grow. Paul didn't want them to be satisfied where they were spiritually. Paul wanted to challenge them to continue to grow as mature Christians. His desire was to challenge them to seek, to continue to seek the Lord and grow in their understanding of God's will through personal prayer, study, obedience to God's leadership in their lives. Paul wanted them to be moving forward spiritually because that is the will God has for each of us. That's what God wants for each one of us. The will of God, Paul mentions, is not some secret, uh, secret thing that we've got to force out of God. It's actually easy to understand God's will. Has anybody ever asked themselves, what is God's will for my life? Raise your hand if you've ever questioned. I have. I got to a point where I'm like, man, what is God's will for my life? We, I think a lot of us have asked that question. You want to know how, what God's will is for your life? It's right here. This is what God's will is for your life. Now how that applies, God will lead you through the work of the Holy Spirit. But you start with this. You start with reading God's word, and you start growing. And as you grow, he'll let you know what you're ready for, and he'll start guiding you. But you've got to start with a relationship with him. God has an ongoing will for your life that needs to be rediscovered every day. In God's word, we learn how to avoid sin and to do what's right in the eyes of God. We learn what he wants, how to behave, how to pray. This has everything you need to know God's will. It's complete. Completed, done. Everything you need is in here. The will of God in our lives is revealed primarily through the pages of Scripture, and God will never conflict with what this says. See, the more you know this, the more you know the Word of God, then you know that uh, where, when, when you get offered something or something, you feel connected, or you feel like, you know what, this is the direction God wants me to go, and you study the Word of God, you realize is, if that's true or not. I've shared a story a, a while back about a, a guy who felt called to the mission field. And he was married and had kids, and he was called to the mission field, and he's like, I'm certain i got to go. Went to his wife, talked to the wife. Wife says, I don't feel that same calling. Instead of studying Scripture, he divorced his wife and went on the mission field. That is not what God wants. How would we know? By reading the Word of God. Those are the things that we need to know. We need to study the Word of God so we know what His will is. See, we know stealing is a sin. And if the world says, uh, if we steal something that's worth $20, if I go over to Wes's store and I, I, I put something in my pocket, I, I don't know, 
furniture cleaner or something. I snag something. And I'm like, yeah, this is no big deal. See, that's wrong. We all know that's, that's stealing. But if the world says, oh, it's no big deal because he owns the store, he can afford it, it's okay. The world says that, does that make it right? Does it make it right? No, it's still wrong, right? But how do we know? If the world says it's okay, we still have the word of God that tells us it's wrong. See, the, God, the word of God doesn't change. The word of God is our, is, it, God doesn't change. The word of God doesn't change. And how will we know what's right and wrong unless we study the word of God? The mark of the Christian maturity is our willingness to accept the authority of God's word as our primary authority for life. The result of progressive sanctification is growing toward spiritual maturity that will lead us toward walking in a way that's worthy of the Lord. Walking in a way that, that God says, you know what, that is what I want. We honor Him by how we behave. We honor Him by how we walk. In verse 10, the heart of, of, of Paul's prayer can be found in verse 10. The reason why Paul wanted the Corinthians, or Colossian believers to be filled with knowledge of God's will so they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See, one of the teachings that, that was going on during that time is these, these you know, you've got to look at a little bit of the history and the context of what was going on in Colossus. And what happened was you have the Roman empires everywhere. The Roman empire actually had no real concern about religious things as long as you didn't uproar and go against the Caesar. If you wanted to be a, 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 a heretic, who cares? You want to be a Jew, who cares? The Romans just wanted peace, and they ruled that way. So then you have these people that are going around, they're picking and choosing. I'm going to believe this, I'm going to believe that, and they're just picking from different religions and putting it into one. And one of those is called Gnosticism. And we talked about this last week. Gnostics come from the word Gnosis, which is knowledge. And, this, and they said that if you, were, if you had knowledge, okay, the Christian life, Christ isn't sufficient, but you have to have all this extra knowledge. You have to understand these things for, to be, be super believers. You have, to be, you have to understand to have all this knowledge to be spiritually mature. And it's all about knowing things. The, the, uh, the main goal was knowledge for the Christian. That's what they're being taught. These teachers claimed to possess a higher knowledge of God reserved for these so-called super believers. By learning their, their so-called spiritual truth and following their legalistic religions, religious traditions, believers were supposed to enter into a privileged uh, a relationship with God. And that's where a lot of the Catholicism happened in the early 1500s, is that, or even before that, Catholics, uh, priests were taught that, that, you know, hey, if you're a priest, you have a, a special relationship with God. So the only way you can have your sins forgiven is you go to the priest and confess them, and he'll mediate for you. And that's what Catholics were taught. And it wasn't until the Reformation of uh, early 1500s when, they, when uh, uh, Martin Luther rebelled against that. That was a common thing, and we still have that today. People think preachers are, are, you know, we have like this special relationship with God, and we don't. We're just one beggar showing another beggar where to find food. That's all us preachers are. That, we're no different than any of you. But for some reason, they, these people, this even goes back even then, that they're saying that you have to have this knowledge to be, have a special relationship with God, and that's not true. Paul knew ritualism never led anyone to a deeper relationship with God. 
That's religion. And religion will keep death in your life. Religion is what Jesus came to abolish and to, to free us from was religion. Paul believed and taught that the will of God is to be pursued to enable believers to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And as we grow in this relationship with the Lord, it ought to thrill us. As we, as we be sanctified, as we grow with the Holy Spirit, we're to walk in a manner worthy of God. And as we walk in a manner worthy of God, it should thrill us. It should be excite us. It should be something that we are on top of the world about. Why do people pursue the things they do? Why does a fisherman pursue fishing? To get a big bass, right? Why does a hunter pursue hunt, uh, all those deer out there? They want that trophy on the wall. They want those, that big buck mounted on the wall. Why does a, a, a golfer continue to play golf? Because they're hoping for that hole-in-one. Why do we do the things we do? Because that thrill keeps us going. When we, when we hit that three-par and we're excited... Or we, 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 we are under our, I don't know, I'm not a golfer, I haven't golfed in 20 years. So, uh, but if you're under, I know that if you get a lower number, that's good, right? So if you, if you hit that lower number, you get a 68 out of an 80 par. That's good. And you're excited and you're thrilled and you can't wait to go back next weekend to keep doing it. You stop slicing and you actually hit the ball straight. It's a thrill. Hunters, I see, I watch a little bit of, I love fishing shows, but every once in a while I watch a hunting show. You see these pros, and they get that big monster buck or that elk, and they're jumping up and down, just thrilled, and they're running, woohoo! It thrills them. We, we do what we do because of the thrill of the pursuit. As Christians, it should thrill us to please the Lord. It should thrill us to pursue God. It should thrill us just like that hunter does when he's looking for that big buck. Just like that golfer does when he hits a hole-in-one. It should thrill us. The only way that this could be true is if our ultimate desire is to do what Paul says in verse 10. To please the Lord in all respects and bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus. As we grow and we are sanctified, and we grow toward maturity, we start walking in the Lord, and it starts thrilling us. And we start seeing God work, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. You start sharing the gospel, and, they, and somebody comes to Christ, and it thrills you. You get to baptize the first person. And I'll tell you, if you lead somebody to Christ, you get to baptize them. And that is a thrill. Let me tell you, I baptize all my kids, three of the five so far, and it's a thrill to baptize your own kids. It's an awesome experience. You get, you get this, this joy that you can't explain to other people. Don't let anybody fool you. Living the Christian life is not merely an academic exercise or achieving a set of moral habits or, or coming to church on Sunday every Sunday and never missing a Sunday. It's more than that. The Christian life involves bearing fruit and having that joy and peace and love that is in your life. Look up Galatians 5.22 if you want to know what, the bear, what, the, what bearing fruit looks like. But we need to realize that we cannot please God by depending on our own strength. We cannot grow in the Lord simply by relying on our will. It's not, it's not us doing it all. That's why Paul's prayer reminds us that, we ought, that if we are truly living to please God in all respects, others ought to be able to see it. 
See, they will be able to see God's power instilled within you. And in verse 11, Paul assures the Colossians that our Lord is more than willing to strengthen them with all power per his glorious might. I love that phrase, glorious might. His glorious might. He's willing to give us the power to do these things. The term glorious uh, might is a reference to God's power when when God used it to raise Jesus from the dead. It's the same word. If the power of God's glorious might is able to raise Jesus from the dead, do you think He can work in your life? Do you think that He can mold you toward Christ-likeness? Do you think that He can actually do these things to make you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Absolutely. God certainly has the power we need to make whatever change we need to make in our lives for God's glory. He can give us that power. When Paul talks about being strengthened, he's reminding us that God has the power to help us in all aspects of our lives. See, a lot of times we call on God when, when we've got to teach a Bible study, we've got to teach Sunday school for the first time, and we're nervous and we're scared. Or we've got to preach our first sermon or, or lead somebody to Christ. We've got to share the gospel. I'll tell you, when you share the gospel the first time, you're going to mess it up. Don't worry about it. Don't be nervous. Keep it simple. But you're going to be nervous. And a lot of times we think about how God will work in those things as long as we're doing that something for him specifically. But you know what? God's power can work in all of our, all aspects of our lives. Whether it's paying our bills or understanding how to budget our money. Whether it's how to have personal relationships. How to lead people. How to do certain jobs. God's power is able to help us in all aspects of our life. God certainly wants to empower us for these acts. But even more powerful display of God's power is when we trust the Lord to give us the strength to remain committed to the Lord in practical affairs of our lives. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just when we come to teach a Bible study. It's, it's in all aspects of our life. When God's power is truly instilled with us, we'll grow with patience. We'll grow in knowledge. We'll grow with patience with our coworkers. We'll have, uh, we'll have joy despite challenges that we face. We'll have more compassion in our lives. We'll find it easier to be kind to others in big and small ways. When we live our lives daily for the Lord, we honor God, testifying to the greatness of God's power. We show the world what God is really about. By doing our work joyously, with steadfastness and patience. This is as much as part of the Christian witness as our ability to quote Scripture, to tithe faithfully, to serve in a local church. When we allow, or when we depend on God's power instilled within us, others will be able to see God work in your life more clearly and and better than any word of witness you can give. The more we share, they will see it in your behavior. They'll see it in your life. A final aspect of Paul's prayer is for the growth of believers. It's often overlooked. In the last few verses of today, uh, verses 13 through 14, this, this, this little section is just as important and that we should be thankful for all that God has done. Be thankful for all that God has done in our lives. 
Think about this for a minute. I'm not talking about having a, a house or, or material things. Forget about the material things. The fact that he died on the cross for us and gave us an opportunity to spend eternity with him which should provide us a gratitude and a position to say, you know what, Lord? I will do what you want me to do because of what you have loved me first and you died on the cross for me. God has done everything in the process of us being able to go to heaven. Think about that. He has done everything for you for you to go to heaven. You don't have to do anything. He's done it. All you have to do is accept that gracious offer. That's it. And when you do that, you'll be sanctified positionally, and then he will start, the Holy Spirit will start growing in you and working in you to help you grow progressive sanctification until the day where you get to glorify God and praise him in heaven. He's done everything for you. In those last verses, the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the King James use this and says delivered us. That's what we read earlier. It says he delivered us. But I don't think delivered is really a great word to use for this. You know, because we deliver groceries, or we deliver newspaper, or we deliver bad news or good news. We deliver things. But you know what's a better word? In the New Living Translation, and New American Standard, NIV, that one uses a word, rescued us. And I think that fits so much better. Because you know what? Because it, we, God rescued us for a life of darkness. He rescued us from sin. He rescued us for eternal damnation. He rescued us from that kind of life. And he gave us hope. That's what the Son did. That's what Jesus did in our lives. Paul knew that, and he was encouraging the Colossian church to grow, to become holy the way God wants. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for, for this letter. It's a beautiful letter that Paul wrote, and, and we know that you inspired Paul to write this, Lord, and thank you so much for it. It's, so, it's filled with so much depth. And, and it's amazing, Lord. And the more we study this, the more we learn, the more we grow. And I hope, Lord, that we are all convicted from this letter. I hope that you will, uh, the Holy Spirit will continue to work in our lives and challenge us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. We want to be like you, Jesus. We want to walk like you walked. We want to have your patience. We want to have your joy. We want to have your faith. We want to be more Christ-like. So we ask you, I ask you right now as a preacher of this church, to, we ask the Holy Spirit to work in every single person's life, Lord, and help them be what you'd want them to be. If that means a little discipline, if that means a little challenging, a little conviction, whatever it needs, help them grow toward Christ-likeness. Help them grow toward holiness. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.